Hello and Happy New Year! I just wanted to take the time to thank each and every one of you who is listening for joining me on this journey. It is really fun for me and I hope it's fun for you. We are going to get into this next chapter, but I first wanted to take the time to say that I really appreciate you and I hope you will continue to join me into the new year. Now stay tuned. Hello and welcome all of my artists, art lovers and creatives of all kinds. This is Raven's Fine Art. My name is Raven. And today we are continuing our series coaching from the masters. So we're studying art masters from the past and figuring out what we can learn from their example, both in their artistic practice and also in their careers. So for Picasso, we are exploring the book Picasso and the Art of Drawing by Christopher Lloyd. And we are on chapter three, the Rose Period. All right, so by now our friend Picasso has permanently uh, set up shop in Paris. That is his new home. And so reading on page 46. So the move to Paris in the spring of 1904 was a defining moment in Picasso's life. His decision to settle in the city permanently meant that he had now arrived center stage in the art world where it would be easier for his work to be seen and his fast developing talents to be recognized. So he, as I mentioned last week, talking about his, basically his strategy with his career is one of which is to be the center of where all the action was, which was Paris at the time. So as he got there, so he got there in 1904, so he didn't have a reputation yet. He was brand new in the city and he had been back and forth visiting, of course, but now he was a permanent resident. And from 1904 to 1909, he basically lived in a dump. Um, he lived in a place that said, let me read the quote, the, li <laughs> the living conditions were extremely primitive and cramped. It was overrun by mice and infested by bed bugs, as well as being too cold in winter and too hot in summer. So this is Pablo Picasso moving from his middle-class uh, upbringing in Spain with his art professor father and moving out on his own to Paris. So he definitely had to take a step backwards. So he's living in a dump and he did that note for five years. So that is dedication. That's what he needed to do in order to get himself going. And there in Paris, he uh, met at this time, around this time, his first long-term girlfriend and muse. Her name was Fronand Olivier. And she was living in the same building. So imagine you're two people struggling, <laughs> struggle love. <laughs> 
So this was his first muse, first long-term girlfriend. And this is also around this time where he met his first crew, his posse. So they consisted of five people uh, of his closest friends. One was Max Jacob. Uh, this guy was into French literature, European art, and the occult. He actually sounds like fun. I like Max Jacob, even though I know nothing about him other than this, but that's a cool combination. French literature, European art, and the occult. <laughs> Bring him to any party. All right, next was Guillaume Apollinaire. So this was another good friend of his. Um, Apollinaire was one of the most original writers and editors on the Paris literary scene. So this is a hot new up and comer, a great writer and editor. So this is a good friend to have. Next is Andre Salmon. Uh, he was a poet and a journalist. And then we've got two more poets. One was Maurice uh, Reynal and another was Pierre Riverdi. And hopefully I'm not mispronouncing those names, but I've only seen them written. I haven't heard them pronounced. So this was Pablo Picasso's posse. And it's interesting to note that of his closest friends listed here, they were all writers and poets. There weren't actually any other artists. So I'm curious uh, to know if that was um, on purpose, if his ego couldn't handle having another uh, super close artist friend, or if it was just these are the people he had the most in common with. Um, but there was a practical, definitely way he used his friends. I mean, his friends were published poets and he illustrated their published volumes of poetry. So this is an example of an artist having what they call a power partner. So this would be somebody who's not in your same exact field, but in a related or tangential um, career path. And you guys can basically refer people to each other because you're not in direct competition, um, but you can offer something to your clients by referring them to this person and vice versa. So um, like, for example, let's say you are a massage therapist and you have a power partner who maybe is a makeup artist. And so the person who would go see a massage therapist would probably also be interested in maybe having a facial or a uh, makeup session. So um, certainly with artists and writers, uh, a writer can definitely be a power partner to an artist. And Picasso was doing that long before it was considered cool or a hot marketing topic. All right, so Pablo Picasso was a man who definitely did things on his own terms. So one of the things that he was adamant about is not um, exhibiting in any official exhibition. Now, I don't know if, again, if that's him making this decision or if he was rejected anyway, I, I suspect it was a little of both. Um, his art was not accepted in the mainstream yet. Um, so they wouldn't have wanted him exhibiting in any official capacity, but also that wasn't his thing. He wanted autonomy and he wanted uh, freedom and he wanted to be with people that liked his work. I mean, sometimes as artists, we end up, you know, banging our heads against the wall, trying to force people to like our work that don't. Um, Picasso was smarter than that. He's like, look, I don't want to be scrutinized and be around these people that are too snooty, who don't like my work, who think that, you know, my work is not good enough. 
So he wanted to be with the people that appreciated him. And, and this was more the avant-garde people and, and stuff like that. So interestingly, in Paris, um, the, the French art collectors were very particular. So they did tend to go with the more established artist. Um, so his first super fans, if you will, were non-French. So his first few collectors were, for example, um, German um, Willem Undy. Uh, one of his first collectors from Germany. Um, from Russia, we have Sergei Shokan and Ivan Morozov. And then from America, of course, you have Gertrude Leo and Michael Stein, and also Etta and Clara Bell Cohn. So these were his first um, collectors, and they, even though he was living in the hub of the artistic community, his collectors were from outside the area. All right, so the cool thing about the Rose period, um, actually, the way we know a lot about the Rose period is through the drawings. There weren't a lot of paintings from this period, but there were lots of drawings. Um, and when you, when you think about it around this time, you know, 1904 is when he got to Paris. He had that major exhibition, as I spoke on last week, um, but he didn't have a lot of paintings because he had been traveling back and forth from Spain to Paris and now he had moved. So whenever you move anywhere, especially move countries, you're not gonna have a lot of stuff. So he didn't have a lot of paintings, but of course drawings are very easy. Um, so he had a lot of drawings from this period. So in his work, he tended to, during this period, he, he kept a lot of the conventions of the blue period, for example, his depiction of women uh, were still similar to the ones from the blue period. They were very uh, delicate looking. They had the long necks, the long tapered fingers. They're like angular shoulders. They were thin and, and small boned. So at this time, that's what he liked. And so that's what he was painting. And so that carried over from the blue period. So reading from page 50, discussing the, road, the Rose period, um, Picasso's main preoccupation during the Rose period was to create a major painting that would be worthy of comparison with works by the greatest French artists. For this purpose, encouraged by Apollinaire, that was one of his friends that I mentioned, he concentrated on a particular theme, namely the depiction of the traveling entertainers known as Salting Bonks. So these were the people, I think I mentioned these two last week, they were wandering, traveling, um, almost like circus performers. They would travel from town to town and perform. Um, so they were common on the streets of Paris. So this was his subject matter. Uh, so going on on page 50, such subjects had a limited appeal for salon artists, but it was the avant-garde artists in particular who identified with the clowns, jugglers, acrobats, phenambulists, and writers because of their unconventional, risky, and lonely circumstances. Okay, very interesting. And then later on on that same page, Whereas the figures in the blue period are seen as the victims of society, those in the rose period are at least in charge of their own destiny, even though they are alienated from society. 
It was with this alienation that Picasso, like other writers and artists of his day, identified himself. To the extent that the works of the Rose period can be seen as metaphors for the practice of art in general. Okay, so this is where his head was at during the Rose period. So he's new in Paris. He's, he's had his first major breakthrough with the Blue period, but now he's moving on. He's uh, kind of clarifying and expanding his vision. Uh, he's kept some of the uh, traits of the Blue period, but he's expanding. And, and one of the things he started doing is instead of just painting, you know, portraits or, or a couple people in a painting or drawing, he was doing multi-figured compositions. So he started doing groups. And this is very practical for his subject matter because they would travel in groups and a lot of them were families traveling together. But it was also an expansion of his artistic practice. And, you know, it's more complicated to make a good composition with multiple figures. So he was also expanding his skills as an artist. All right, so my opinion of the Rose period, uh, to touch on that real quick. So I really love the multi-figure compositions. I love that branching out. I mean, portraits will always be kind of a classic subject matter and he was doing portraits as well. But doing the multi-figure compositions, I really like them because it's easier to tell a story and a narrative with multi-figure compositions. And that's what I really like about painting. Um, paintings that you look at it and you wanna know the backstory and you kind of start putting that backstory together in your head. So he was doing work more like that. He, and he was purposely trying to do that. He wanted to make something substantial. Um, and you know, another thing that I really love about the Rose period is that um, his work to me was starting to look a lot more sophisticated, um, not in terms of skill. I mean, he had the skill since he was little, but um, his blue period works, you know, blue is such a dominant and um, influential color. So when he was using a lot of the blue, um, the blue really took on a character of his own and it's, it's heavy, it's sad. He was doing a lot of poverty stricken people. He was doing some performers at that time too, but he was just doing any random poor person. Um, and so that combined with the blue, the work has a, a clunkier and heavier feel to me. But the rose, I mean, rose color has a, definitely a psychological effect. It's, it's softer, it's gentler. It's more sophisticated. Um, it's not like a screaming red and it's not a stark white. It's in that, that pink midground that's really beautiful and really soft and poetic. Um, so his work definitely started looking more elevated in my opinion. Uh, but one painting I hate that he did is featured on page 57 of the book. Uh, the title of the piece is Seated Saltimbaltique with a Boy. So it's a painting of, you know, one of the performers, the Saltimbeeks, um, I'm sorry, how do you pronounce that? Saltimbanks. So it's one of the performers um, is sitting with a boy. So the performer is a man and the boy seated with him is um, young. So the adult is overweight. He looks like he's probably, I don't know, 40 or so, maybe 30 something, late 30s, 40, something like that overweight he's wearing like um, a performer sort of clown outfit with like a jester's hat sort of on top of his head and he's looking down at the boy the boy is naked and, and young and, and thin and uh, the boy is kind of like leaning 
on, on one of the adult's legs and the adult is looking down at him and the little boy is kind of looking off to the right, off into space. And I hate this painting, uh, not for the way it looks. Um, I hate it because it reminds me of like pedophilia and I don't know what's going on here. Like maybe it's innocent. Maybe this was just like this, this performer's son or something, but just the way the stairs are, the guy looking down at him and the boy looking off into space, it looks predatory to me. And I hate this painting. And if I could claw it out of the book, I would. I hate it. Um, but that's the deal. Sometimes, you know, you can't please everybody. And so Picasso has not pleased me with that painting. All right, so takeaways from this week. So let's go through, I've got four takeaways from Picasso's Rose period. So number one, sometimes as an artist or even an entrepreneur of any kind, you have to take a step backwards before you can go forward. So thinking about Picasso's first rat infested, nasty apartment that he was living in for five years, um, is you know the price that he had to pay he wanted to be in the hub of of the art world he wanted to branch out and he wanted to be independent so this is what it took he didn't have enough money for a good place so but he didn't compromise on his vision so i really respect that and that's something that you know you may not choose to suffer in that um, regard, but you're going to have to do something. So you're going to have to be a dual career, perhaps. Like if you don't want to suffer and live in a, a crappy apartment or live in your car, then you may have to balance a crappy day job um, with your art. And so that's its own kind of suffering. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's no way around it. At some point, you're going to have to pay the price. So that's takeaway number one. Number two, so there's a cliche that, you know, our mothers always said, you know, don't fall in with the wrong crowd. And, and that's something that people say when someone starts going downhill, oh, they fell in with the wrong crowd. But there's the opposite too. There's the right crowd. And Picasso was no fool. He, uh, he established a crew that not only people that he enjoyed, but people that could elevate and work and help his career. So, and that is the case with your crew. The people around you are either going to elevate you or they're going to drag you down. There really isn't any mid ground, especially as you start changing. If you're, if you're doing the status quo, then maybe that's not the case. You can all just be mediocre together and not do any positive changes in your life. And, and you know, there'll be no conflict, no nothing. But whenever you're trying to actually accomplish something in this case, because I was trying to establish his art career, um, you're moving, you know, whenever you're moving up, you're moving. And so the people around you've got to be moving at that same pace. They've got to, you know, be cheering you on. They've got to be doing their own thing. And what's smart about him having writers as friends instead of other painters is that he kind of eliminated that whole like frenemy thing Like there was no direct competition with these people. So not only were they power partners, as I mentioned before, but you didn't have that baggage of artistic competition. So they could spur each other on their, their artistic, you know, uh, mindset was similar enough that they had a lot in common, but there was no conflict there. So that's really smart. So up your crew, if you've got to dump them and get somebody new, <laughs> you've got to get a new group and you don't need to dump them. You know, I'm kidding, but you do need to purposely put yourself around people that support your vision. Number three, so base your art on things that inspire you. So 
when Picasso chose the subjects of the Saltimbiques or Saltimbanks, uh, these were people that he related to because they were traveling performers. Um, and although he's not a traveling performer, he related to their, A, their dedication to their art, B, um, their sort of suffering for their art, and, and also their fierce independence. I mean, they lived outside of the mainstream, you know, just like, you know, the, the stereotype of the circus performer, they're not ever going to be mainstream. And they were happy with that. They loved their lives. They did this on purpose. And, um, Picasso could relate to that. He was outside of the artistic establishment on purpose, on purpose. And also they didn't want him, but, you know, he didn't want them as well. So he, he, prized his independence and he maintained it at all costs. So base your art on images that bring you inspiration, things that you relate to, because that passion is going to show up. I mean, without fail, when I am drawing or painting something that I, I know I'm not into, it just shows. I mean, it's just, you can't hide it, you know, no matter what your skills are, if, if you're not into it, it's going to show up. And lastly, don't paint pedophiles. I hate that painting. Anyway, so that is it for today. I hope you got something from that. I hope that your art is flourishing and I hope that you have a wonderful and productive week. I will see you next time. Thank you, bye-bye.